0: This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, it is almost D-Day for election campaigns, and these last days can be crazier than ever. We talk campaigning with Michael Steele, former RNC chairman and senior advisor at the Lincoln Project. He's also a former lieutenant governor at the state of Maryland. Michael, great to talk to you again. Hope you're doing well.
1: I am doing well. I hope you are as well, Dan.
0: Thank you. I am. Thank you for asking. So uh, give us your sense of, of from what you remember from campaigning what the last couple of weeks was like.
1: Oh, this is this is the crazy season right here. I mean, it's not even silly. It's beyond silly. Um, in some campaigns, you know, it could be desperation. In other campaigns, it could be this sense of, okay, we got this. But whatever it is, uh, you know, whether you're running for sheriff or you're running for president of the United States, um, you, you amp up uh, everything. You're just on the outside of 10 days uh, from now, you're going to have an election in your backyard and you've got to be prepared for that. So you have a lot of focus on ground game, polling, internal polling takes over um, because that is the immediate pulse of where you're campaigning. Your candidate happens, happens to be with, with the uh, voting population. Right. So there's a lot going on right now. Um, it may not look like it, you know, on, on, from the outside, But internally, uh, there are a lot of nervous Nellies around all things from did that ad get out correctly? Um, What was the last polling number? You know, what's our get out the vote uh, look like at this point?
0: So touch on uh, polling a little bit more, because I think, you know, 2016 uh, kind of turned people's heads around uh, in terms of polling. I think the last couple of presidential elections to a degree have done that as well. But, you know, going back four years, uh, uh, the expectation was that Hillary Clinton was probably going to win by six to seven points about a week before the election. And obviously that didn't occur. And and I think there are a lot of questions about polling and, and, you know, internal may be a little bit different. But from the general public's view, I'm I don't know how much people really buy into polling when they see these numbers pop up over the months prior to an election. Well, a couple
1: of things to keep in mind, and, and, I, and I, I've been saying this you know, for a very long time um, from my experience in politics. You cannot rely on national polling uh, because national polling gives you a snapshot of what someone's in a part of the country you don't live in thinks about what's going on in your backyard so that makes no sense so when you see these national polls where Biden is up by 8 or 12 or 20 you've got to take that not with a grain but with a pound of salt because that's looking at metrics that aren't giving you a real snapshot of the rates where you want to focus because we are a battleground state um, uh, voting operation in other words there are only, only out of 50 states, there are only 12 states that matter about who becomes the next president of the United States. And we yeah. know them. We've heard of them Ohio, Florida, Nevada, you know, Wisconsin, and so forth. And when you look at 2016, the mistake that was made by the media and, quite frankly, uh, the, the Clinton campaign was they paid attention more closely to national polling, which showed Clinton up. When you go back and you look at the on-the-ground, uh, on the um, you know, state-by-state uh, state polling in you know, those battleground states, yeah. Hillary was actually tied or losing, and it played itself out. So when you look at Wisconsin, that's why people were saying, why didn't she go back to Wisconsin? Why didn't she go back to Michigan? Because they were looking at national polling that gave the impression that she was strong. Yeah. And after all, Michigan and Wisconsin are a Democratic state, so why, why would I need to go back there? But the reality on the ground was Trump was able to eat into her numbers in such a way that he won by a total of 78,000 votes across three states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and um, uh, Wisconsin. So the closer you are to the ground in the polling, meaning looking at these battleground states, that gives you a, a better snapshot of where the race is. And right now, this race is a lot closer than a national poll would tell you it is.
0: How how then, in your experience, is running a campaign for an incumbent different than running it for a first-time candidate?
1: Oh, well, if you're a first-time candidate, you're a challenger. The world is your oyster. You can come at your opponent from almost any angle because you're trying to get a leg up. You're trying to get inside her head. You're trying to get her off balance. You're trying to do whatever you can uh, to get... A, noticed, right? You want yep. people to notice your campaign. And then B, traction, where once they notice it, they kind of stay with it. They want to see what more you do. If you're the incumbent, well, that's a whole different ballgame because now yep. you've got a record. You've been, you've been in the job for four years or two years if you're a congresswoman. And so the reality is very different for you. You're on defense. You're you, you know Unless you're in a congressional district or running in a state – You know where um, the the demographics and and, excuse me the um, uh, uh, you know base support is greater for you than it would be for your opponent. You know you're in a red state or a blue state. Um, Yeah, you're going to be that's a different place. But if you're if you're in Colorado, um, if you're in North Carolina, uh, if you're in Georgia, uh, and now even Texas, (laughs) which we could talk about how that how that's flipping. Um, it becomes a little bit more of a challenge because you have to defend your record while you're trying to advance um, the case for your reelection. Uh, and that becomes a little bit more tricky for some incumbents, as, as we've seen uh, play out um, in places like Nevada with McSally, uh, yep. having to defend not just her record, but defend her relationship and uh, association with the president, who's not popular in the state. Mark Kelly is able to, you know, wear down on that. And he's ahead.
0: How much then in terms of the issues that that campaigns will bring up is economy in the mix? And obviously, a lot of people have talked about if if President Trump is going to uh, do well in in the debate coming up, uh, then he really needs to focus on economy. And the expectation is that that may be one of his selling points right now in terms of the race with with Joe Biden. But. When when the campaign is is doing that, there is obviously the opportunity for them to try and, you know, dig the dirt up and, and and go that route. But where does economy fit into all of that?
1: The economy is always, always going to be your baseline, because at the at the end of the day, uh, a mom is going to sit down at the kitchen table and figure out what the economy is, what it is for her and her family. And that is going to shape her vote. Now, the problem is is pre-COVID-19, this was a 60-40 race for Donald Trump. He had the advantage. The economy was hot. Uh, people were doing well, whether in reality or perception. Some people who didn't get the benefit of the tax cuts believe they did. So they kind of bought into uh, that side of it. Um, uh, and that, and that works for the president, not taking away from him, it. it just does. I mean, whether it was Donald Trump or, or any other um, uh, individual in the job, it's going to work when the economy is humming. When the economy stalls or hits um, a hot, you know, a hard spot, um, yeah, that's also on the incumbent. And the, ch- the challenge then becomes how do they navigate so that that mom who's at the kitchen table yeah. um, feels, okay, yeah, it's a little tight, but it'll get better. It's a little tight, but I see some light. Oh, it's a little tight, but that's just a, a momentary thing. Next month, Or or six weeks from now, we're going to be in a better position. Um, That has not been able to happen so much because of COVID-19. It has continued to be a drag on the economy. You have, what, 13, 14 million Americans who still have not gotten their jobs back um, from the initial shutdown of the economy. So you've had businesses lost. You've had jobs lost. uh, You've had a relatively slow economy. Yes, a recovery. It has bounced up for some, no doubt. But you still, like I said, have thirteen million Americans in jobs that no longer exist or, or won't come back anytime soon. So that mom now is maybe one of those people who had a job and doesn't, you know, or whose you know husband um, had a business and doesn't. Yeah. So that economy is going to weigh as much as anything else um, when they're looking at um, who they're going to select for for president. And if you notice what happened then, Donald Trump, up till about three weeks ago, was leading Joe Biden by anywhere from seven to ten points uh, on the question of who's best handle um, to, who's best to handle the economy. Right. He's now underwater to Biden by something like three points or four points. So that 10, 15, 14 point turnaround does not help the president in his final case. So in the debate, he's going to have to hit that hard um, and hope the American people trust and believe what he's saying.
0: We are joined uh, by Michael Steele, former uh, RNC chairman, uh, senior advisor for the Lincoln Project. I wanted to ask you about uh, about the the side of technology and, and its role in terms of presidential and campaigns, just campaigns in general. Because obviously, more and more social media is being used, more and more connection via technology is being yeah. used. Uh, obviously, we've made a big shift in terms of how campaigns. Uh, really play out because of technology. And it's not like it's going to be turning back and going, you know, old school anytime soon. It's right. just going to continue to, you know, to look for different ways to be able to maximize the ability to reach voters through technology uh, and other means.
1: Yeah. Technology has actually changed the way we engage. And it's even, even not so much technology in the first instance, but social media has, has, it's, allowed campaigns to go around some of the traditional infrastructure of campaigning TV ads commercials right that you would see inundating your television screens right yeah. now you still yeah. see it far more people pay less attention to that yeah. um, than what you know what we're doing at Lincoln Project for example we put an ad up on the internet <laughs> okay <Yeah. laughs> you know next thing we know four million people have watched it yeah um, in, in you know two hours. So it, it it changes the way you engage people, and it changes the way in which they engage you. In other words, they're much more selective, and they pick and choose what it is they want to watch, what they want and, to consume. And the and, technological the technological uh, uh, aspects of that uh, are also such that uh, campaigns now are, are able to define their metrics better. One of the things that yeah. the Republican Party have perfected was so sort of the grassroots identification sort of i finding out what our voters at the grassroots level think want um, how they approach voting. That now has been combined um, you know with consumer data that gives us a much better well-rounded view of the American voter and how to target information target how to target you know uh, candidates uh, and their messaging more directly to them. So it has fundamentally changed the way we campaign. And it has fundamentally changed the way voters consume that information uh, and decide who they want in the office um, that um, you know, whether it's president or whatever.
0: Have about thirty seconds left. Let me ask you, we obviously have a debate tonight. What's the advice you give to to candidates going into into a debate?
1: if you're if you're Joe Biden, just do what you've been doing. Um, stay focused on your messaging and your conversation with the American people ignore the guy standing to your right just ignore him. Uh, I, that's a tr- uh, you know attack that I was uh, always used when I would debate because um, it's not about engaging him so much as, as particularly at this stage sending your message giving a reason to the American people to fire the guy to your right if you're Donald Trump you just gotta till it down a bit you got you've got to give pe- the American people a reason to reelect you he has not done that yet. Um, it is a frustration, I know, from inside his campaign that they want him to to really send, and to your point about the economy, send a positive message out about the economy, send a positive message out about COVID, how he's handled COVID-19, et cetera, and, and give the American people a reason to give you the job back.
0: Great talking to you again, Michael. Uh, always enjoy your conversation with us, and thanks for giving us some time today.
1: Always a pleasure,
0: my friend. Anytime. Thank you. Michael Steele, former RNC chairman and senior advisor to the Lincoln Project. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.